0: for the drapes because I couldn't remember which way they went. And um, I, I decided that it was time to uh, let go of the handle at my job. Um, and it was time, shortly after that, a few years after um, I told Jim that it was time for us to go and see what was going on. Um, I did very much suspect that it was Alzheimer's because the family history um, for uh, known three people, um, it was pretty clear. So I, I know that you're, it was your
1: father. And I, I should point out, um, a lot of people uh, may have already heard of you because of the New York Times article. They wrote a really long piece um, <laughs> on both of you, which was a, a lovely piece. Um, um, and in it, you talk about your dad, who, who also had Alzheimer's disease. Is that right? That's right, yes, yes. And was your, did your dad get Alzheimer's at quite a young
0: age? Um, he he was sixty four when he really was um, he had to retire um, he was asked to retire um, so that that goes on probably you know actively back to, to age sixty yeah.
1: I, I think one of the things that um, struck me with with that article and your diagnosis, um, Jerry, is the fact that you were really self aware. Um, you you were the one. I mean, you know, we hear stories and we talk to other people about decrease of productivity um, when at work, um, setting set, setting alarm bells off, but it was. It was almost like you self diagnosed it, it it appeared that you almost self diagnosed yourself even before you went to the doctors. Did was that what it was like?
0: Well, you're you're right on. Um, when I went to the doctor it was basically confirmation and is there anything I could do medically? Um, I knew I knew there wasn't anything big, but um, that was the confirmation that I needed. And uh, and I have been on one of the very few drugs uh, ever since.
2: Now, um, Deborah, sorry, go Deborah. ahead,
0: Jim, did
1: you want to add to that?
2: There was an incident that caused Jerry to say that we needed to go see the neurologist. Um, she had mentioned to me several times that she was having memory problems, but Jerry's always had an excellent memory, and I have not, so I just thought, that's good, you know, age is going to be the great leveler here. Uh, I didn't really worry very seriously about anything more than that, but then one morning,
0: um, I say, so, yes, I went into our, the, uh, the bathroom. bathroom, yes, and I was, I was looking for a more elegant word, and um, <laughs> <laughs> and I looked in the mirror, and my my image did not look like what it looked like in my brain, and I literally didn't recognize my own uh, face.
1: I, um, I can't even imagine what that would be like, and I, I know you mentioned that in the article, too, but I, I can't even, I mean, that that was such a Striking statement that to look in the mirror and say, "I is this what I look like?" I mean, I I, I imagine that was terrifying.
0: Um, yeah, um, <laughs> I, I knew it was weird, um, but I, I wouldn't say ter- I wouldn't use terrified, but um, it was it was shaking. Um, because I knew it was an effect of, you know, my brain not operating properly and hooking up with what I knew previously and what my face looked like. And
1: Jim, I mean, a lot of Jerry's self-awareness has really allowed her to figure out, you know, what was going on. At that point, before she was given a diagnosis, did you recognize, I mean, before she told you she didn't recognize yourself in the mirror, um, did you notice anything was going on at home?
2: No, No. Uh, Jerry's a very intelligent person. And one of the things, Deborah, that she has done remarkably well from then until now is to develop terrific strategies to compensate for declining cognition. And uh, so while she she had mentioned some uh, cognitive problems, I really hadn't paid much attention. It's amazing how well uh, you protect yourself from hearing what you don't want to hear. So we proceeded after the incident with a mirror to, to go to the neurologist. And even as we went in, I was not really expecting much. And of course, he identified Jerry's cognitive issues and uh, diagnosed her at that time as mild cognitive impairment, MCI, which of course later was confirmed as uh, early Alzheimer's. And uh, it was nothing I wanted to hear. I really uh, did not react well. I uh, had a probably a typical male reaction. I went into my cave. I was <laughs> depressed and uh, kind of withdrawn for two weeks And I didn't even remember that, in fact, until we started talking to the reporter from the Times. And Jerry reminded me uh, Mm -hmm. this was not what I wanted to hear. It was not the retirement I had looked forward to. It was not why we had moved into New York City. And I had a nurse to take care of me. You know, I didn't want to have to take care of her. I wasn't any good at that. So it took me a while to come to grips with the issue. And I, you know, I acknowledge it, and I acknowledge it when we speak, because I think that's not an atypical reaction. And I think it's helpful to share it. Um, and, you know, it's okay, people really need to go through that period of adjustment to a serious diagnosis. And uh, after a couple of weeks, I was ready to come back and support Jerry. And we really spent a lot of time dialoguing about what we wanted our life to be like.
1: And Jerry, at that time, I mean, you know, I imagine at the time of diagnosis, you were so self-aware with that you recognized first there was a problem when you received, and so many people, they, you know, you always get the MCI diagnosis before a doctor will say, yes, it's Alzheimer's, right? But yeah. what was going through your mind after, after that doctor's visit?
0: Well, it was actually quite strange because of the, the things I was experiencing. I really didn't have a name for it. And um, so our very, very first uh, response was sort of a relief. I mean, because there's a lot of stuff can go on in your brain. Um, and uh, at that point, um, I guess I kind of thought in a, in a sort of typical way of mine is to get the right drugs, do the right thing, you know, and just soldier on. Um, but what I did do was, with Jim and I working, it was to find a trial that met the, um, uh, the requirements that I wanted, um, because I do have a background um, in uh, sure. in research. And um, I wanted to get the best that was out there to to offer. So we hunkered down on that. And I think it also always, you know, um, when you get uh, not great news, um, you know, if you have a plan, if you have something that's going to help you out of it, it it's, um, it's, it, it, mobilizes your energy and that's very hard to be sad or uh, afraid when you're mobilizing and making a plan. So um, we basically soldiered through, got in a trial that was had all the qualifications that we were interested in and um, that is very helping, help, helping for you know the spirit as well as the opportunity potential.
1: Did can I ask? Are you still in that trial? Is the trial over? Did it help? What, which
0: trial was it? It um, the trial is has has been halted. It's the Biogen trial. Oh, you were in Biogen. We've yeah. talked to people.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
2: Had Ecanumab. Yeah, Jerry was in the uh, phase one. So she and it was an open label trial, Deborah, I don't Mm -hmm. know that term, but uh, we know Jerry may have received the placebo. But if she did, after 12 months, she was then moved to the real medication and she was on it uh, for four or five years until it was halted in February.
0: Did you feel like it made a difference? Um, yes, I did feel that. (laughs) Um, And there's so much into that. Um, So being in the trial and being on the team and moving the the issue um, is very uplifting. Um, And whether it, it had the capacity to do what was hoped for in terms of better um, cognition through the workings of your brain. Um, There's still the the side of making towards the goal, which also is very fair, therapeutic.
1: (laughs) I can imagine. I I can imagine. It it gives you a focus and a purpose, a piece of this disease. Um, I I want to talk about something that really struck me because I often, um, when we do these being patient perspective um, interviews, I'm struck by how capable, um, you know, when, when you have an Alzheimer's diagnosis, there tends to be an assumption that that's Really, the beginning of the end, and um, that's where a lot of the isolation kicks in. And um, I love what you did um, when you were seeing um, a, a psychologist uh, to work through, you know, the diagnosis. And she had told you to just not tell anyone because you know, you you will be not accepted. And I, I love the fact that you just said, you know, no way, I'm gonna tell people, I'm not gonna hide behind this. Mm-hmm. Tell us why you you felt that way and what you did, what, what that meant to you.
0: Well, I can't imagine living a dual life, which is essentially what that would be. And let's say you could really pull it off then the energies um, that would go into that, um, for me at least, it wouldn't allow my attention, intention, and energies to live the best life. I'm going to live this Alzheimer's life, and I've got to work at it. I can't be somebody else. It's enough uh, of the changing of my persona. Um, by having Alzheimer's and then to turn a third thing and to fake it up is just, it's too much work. <laughs> and um, besides which, I really um, do believe the more I know, nor more, more I understand and I work around or I absorb mm-hmm. or I accept. And the more I do that, there's less frustration there's a feeling of power in your own um body self and thinking um to put uh, yeah, kind of another persona on top of that i just can't imagine that and um i'm sorry <laughs> All right, <finish>. i'm sorry <laughs> I'm-
1: No, I was just going to say that I love that you two have a partnership in this. And Jim, you too. I mean, you've become a real advocate and spokesperson. So give us that vantage point. Because I know, um, you know, how hard it is for the caregiver um, to be faced with a changing partner. Um, And you seem to have equally as positive an attitude um, um, these days as well.
2: Yeah. It's when I tell people how positive we have been able to live for the last six years since Jerry was diagnosed. I think they're startled. Uh, it's really been a a good time for us. You you mentioned earlier um, the stigma that comes because it's interpreted as the beginning of the end. But people forget or don't understand that the It's a very long disease. Uh, 14 years is the average uh, life after symptoms appear. And uh, in the early stages, one can still be very happy, productive, uh, fully engaged. And uh, that's how we determined we wanted to live. And with Jerry being a very positive person that helped me very much to, to adapt that same philosophy.
1: Uh, so tell us a little bit about some of the work that you're doing today. Um, how, mm-hmm. how how do we see your advocacy work?
2: Well, as you might imagine, the New York Times really was a great platform for us to get involved in many national uh, issues, committees. The thing that I'm most interested in right now is that when Jerry got in the Biogen study, Deborah, the phase one results were... Uh, announced shortly afterward. And they were quite positive. And the trial moved to phase three, and I expected it to fill up very quickly. They were looking for 3,000 people worldwide, but it had very positive press, and a lot of people were aware of it. But it took two and a half years to fill the trial to get the number of applicants that they needed. And it occurred to me uh, just made me aware of what a crisis it is, is getting people into clinical trials. There's a, and I have done some work. At, there's less than 1% of people living with a disease in clinical trials, less than 50,000 people in the U.S. of the nearly 6 million who, have, who are living with a disease. And uh, we don't have enough participants in trials today to meet the demand and at the same time we have leveraged up federal research spending from 400 million to 2.4 billion. So when that begins to bear fruit in a few years there's going to be a very significantly increased need for trial participation.
1: Absolutely and it's it's one of the things too we found um and, and one of the reasons why we found it being patient, because we found a lot of people weren't being well-informed about the research and the yes. of research. It exactly. uh, was not a place to go to to get information on the research that, that people could really, really
2: um, understand. You're putting your finger on it. Um, when we tried to find a trial, uh, Jerry, being a rather educated and a uh, person in the health field. We used a trial match, which is the uh, Alzheimer's uh, tool to find a trial. But because the information you get back is the number of trials that are in your geographic area, and you have to pick a trial, that's very difficult. And what the tool needs to be, and hopefully there'll be some changes this year, uh is a tool that tells you where you can go to the clinics in your geographic area. So you can go in and be evaluated and have the the clinicians suggest that you choose between two or three appropriate trials.
1: So um, I love also that you say, you know, you want to dispel the myth that there's nothing you can do about dementia. Tell us what you're doing about it today. I want it from the caregiver's perspective and Jerry, of course, your perspective. Mm -hmm. What do you feel like you're in control of with this disease?
2: Well, one of the myths, Deborah, that really annoys me, uh, people are not diagnosed now early. um, And the common wisdom is that there's nothing we can do for Alzheimer's, but there are five FDA approved drugs, Aricept, Adonapizil, generically being the most popular one, that uh, ameliorate the symptoms uh, of the disease. It doesn't, nothing approved can stop, cure, or prevent uh, Alzheimer's. But there are five drugs that for many people will uh, alleviate some of the worst symptoms. And, And so there is a real value of going if you're, Experiencing cognitive issues and going and being diagnosed and having th- these medications because your quality of life will improve. It has helped Jerry, uh, and we are both significantly uh, desirous of spreading that word.
1: So, um, Jerry, can I ask what medications are you currently taking? Aricept. <laughs> Just only
0: Aricept. Right.
1: And are you, are you looking, are you in another trial or are you looking
0: for another trial? Yeah, we're doing the, uh, the research, Jim particularly has been uh, all over it, but yes, I would like to be in another trial. Yeah.
2: She has a waiting period for the, uh, before she can join another trial. Right. Right,
0: right. So, um,
1: did I want to talk a little bit about your familial history? Um, now, you you you've had several members, I think, especially on your dad's side of the family, who have had Alzheimer's. Have you been tested for for Have you do you know what your genetic status is?
0: Yes, yes, um, yeah, yeah. I'm a, a double four, um, which um, is, is very for double fours are very likely to get Alzheimer's. And though we're a small group and, you know, maybe 3% of the population make up about half the people who have Alzheimer's. So we're, we're a pretty big hit. Um, yes. My, my father um, had it. My mother um, was more a case of,
2: <laughs>
0: um, diagnosing being confounded because she had emotional problems as well. And the, they, back then, they, just as now, there isn't very much uh, information out or um, approaches for diagnosing people. So my mother's situation was uh, muddied. Um, because of the psychiatric issues.
2: Yeah. Just to clarify, Deborah, um, two or three percent of the population has two genes. These the, the APOE e4 gene increases your likelihood of developing Alzheimer's. If you have one gene from one parent, you're three times more likely than average. And if you have two genes, like Jerry, one from each parent, you're 12, approximately 12. At times more likely. Uh, about 25% of the population has one or two. Uh, m- many having one, and but they make up half of the Alzheimer's patients. And it's very interesting to me. You asked about clinical trials. You know, if if people understand their genetics and understand that they may be passing a deadly gene to their children and their grandchildren, I think they would be much more likely to want to cure the disease, to find a cure and to participate in clinical trials. So one of the things we would like to see is more uh, a more educated, uh, a more education to the people living with a disease about their genetic makeup so that they would be encouraged to participate in trials with the gene.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering, though, um, about lifestyle changes. I mean, uh, you know, we now know, I mean, what's exciting about the research as well is, although there needs to be more of it, we're understanding how lifestyle can impact the brain. Um, and, you know, you, the, the usual suspects you hear about are, are sleep and, um, Exercise, um, things like that. But I'm just right. wondering, personally, um, Jerry, did you change your lifestyle once you had a diagnosis?
0: Not, not very much. Um, I would say I, I always wanted to get out and walk, and I did, you know, athletics of one sort or, or another. Um, but now I, it, it almost feels like a, um, uh, a need. And I walk a lot, and uh, that uh, um, I think that is a big factor uh, in terms of you know um, feeling better, doing better, um, being stronger. Um, That that was ramped up, I would say. as to food I think people are you know, it's, you know it's it's a win-win right you have to eat you want to eat and it's good for certain things so but um, I, I can't really say that that was a driver um, for me the food but um, the but my general thing is to keep all of those systems as well tuned up. You know, my my vision, my um, uh, diet, and um, and my mobility, and keeping all of those tuned up. Um, that and uh, you know, supportive people around you and good relationships. that that'll be. Probably you know half of the medicine that we might come up with, all of that. So,
1: and we we're getting some comments now, and I want to share um, one with you. Um, and it's it's from um, a the a wife of a, a gentleman who has early um, young younger onset, um, and she says that doctors when he was diagnosed really gave him four to eight years to live, and it's been very hard on them with that attached to it. Um, But, you know, again, it may be 14 years for people over 64, but not younger onset. What did the doctors tell you? And did you have that conversation about life expectancy? And what were some of the things that helped you um, through those conversations?
0: Um, We we had no
2: discussion (laughs) with the doctor. The doctor gave us our diagnosis and dismissed us. Uh, we had we were given no information uh, and we came home uh, with only our emotions and uh, that was very difficult one of the things we certainly want to encourage is that there be information available in every neurologist's office so that people can take home they can sign on the Alzheimer's Association has fantastic uh, information about the disease and um, And uh, so we didn't have any discussions with professionals. They were really only between ourselves.
1: Um, One of the things that is mentioned in both the article, and I I think you mentioned it a little bit earlier in this interview is just getting kind of planning in order for what the future looks like. Um, I can imagine, Jerry, that's incredibly hard to do. And, you know, obviously, um, your cognition is still very much intact um, um, six years after your diagnosis, um, but what what was important for you? I mean, when you say getting kind of the plan in order, what exactly did that mean?
0: Well, I, Jim and I have been pretty diligent in terms of financial issues, which comes up you know almost after people get a diagnosis they're thinking about money and how they're going to manage and so forth and that's very very important however i think that there is an awful lot on a very personal basis the day-to-day living basis um that is Extremely important for your daily life, and managing that—you know, getting—you know, getting your um, your surrounds, your um, how how you um, manage your life, the person with the disease, and that that means a lot of changing, um, turning your personal. Uh, Whatever mm-hmm. environment, your your clothing, all the all the stuff at this age that have accumulated become an obstacle. They're in your way. they're confusing. And getting your own your own environment supporting is a very great leap to making you functional.
2: One of the other things I would add, Deborah, that we did in managing is Jerry coaching me on being a good care partner. And uh, I try not to be too resistant. But uh, one of the very significant things that we have noticed in many of the people we meet and talk with is that care partners with the very best of intentions leap right in and want to be very helpful. And often, uh, as well, let me speak for myself, I was too helpful. I wanted to help whenever I could, do whatever I could. And in fact, Jerry explained to me that she needed to discover her own strategies, wanted to remain as independent as long as possible, wanted as little help from me as she had to have. So our agreement was that I would assist only when asked or when I saw that she had failed. Uh, I wanna speak about that, you know, but really about taking away your independence, but also your self-worth, her, her personal value. Uh, was, was We see it often usurped by care partners who really want to do their very best, but in fact, leave the person living with the disease feeling more inept than necessary.
1: Absolutely. I think that's such an important point um, to, you know, and Jerry, as we speak, it's it's obvious that, you know, you have many capabilities that are still there and um, can function. I mean, I know, um, you know, sometimes I get a little pushback for saying this because people say, well, you don't know what they're like 24-7, which is the mm-hmm. truth. But uh, one of the things we really want to do much. is elevate the patient's perspective into this. And Part of the patient's perspective to me is to say, "I'm still capable. I'm still a person who can do many things, even though I have um, a diagnosis." And and that is true um, in many cases for many years. And so I think
0: that's a really
1: important point to make. I,
0: yeah, I, I do think it's um, it, it's a very very important. Uh, I would I would love to have the the energies and the the path. No, the, um, the platform to get that out a lot more because I think the, the first thing that people with Alzheimer's and other diseases that affect their brain, the first thing they need from other people is time. It's not for them to do something. It's to give time for we with the disease to have the time to do it ourselves. And- um, Patience. It, it, patience, <laughs> yes. And I, and I would really like to slow the world with a little you know, widget thing, and that's not gonna happen. But I think if we can build a culture uh, among ourselves to be comfortable That to say, I need you to slow down. Uh, I need you to let me do it in my way. Because not having that is a diminution to the person who they are still. And if that happens, the problem that the caregivers have is sort of fighting against on both ends, what could go on as a more natural um, daily life?
1: Yeah.
2: Deborah, hey. we, we, we speak as often as we can, because just as you're saying, the, the perception that people uh, are quickly disabled or cannot continue to be functioning, uh, the, the best thing we can do to address that stigma is to, to be there, be present, be seen. We spoke to 600 people at an Alzheimer's event in Texas uh, in May, and we have four presentations in October. So as much as we can, we get out and try to inform and speak to people, which is why we were delighted to speak to you tonight, uh, to, to let them know that for many years, a person diagnosed is still a very vital and healthy person somewhat forgetful.
1: And I think that's a really important point to end on. And I thank you both so much for sharing both of your perspectives. I, I think it's incredibly helpful to um, all of us who have been impacted by Alzheimer's disease. And it's wonderful to see a couple um, operating in such a healthy way with this disease. And so I really thank you for that. And thank you for all of the work that you are doing. Um, if if any of our audience has missed any of this interview, we will always post it on beingpatient.com. Um, thanks to Jim and Jerry, and um, we'll keep watching out for your work. Um, and
0: thanks very much for sharing your story with us.
2: Thank you, Darren. Thank you
0: very much.
2: Tonight.